You either bloody hell. I've just come in now. Call you in, Ben. Where are you? Oh, hang on, about. I can just see you. Reach your arm out. Reach your arm out. Yeah, yeah, I've got you. Do you know where door is, or? Oh man, no. Hang about. What's going on? Is it a sea threat? It must be something. It's coming well strong. Jesus Christ! I can't see a thing. Wait a sec. Wait a sec. What's that smell? I can smell burning. Don't give up. Wait a sec. I know what it is. Is it bloody dolphins over the barbecue on the beach? Oh, well, it's alright for them not self-isolating. Look at them. Oh, come on, I'm not tossing them back in today, Arkin. I can't see out. I'll, I'll be falling in. Don't you, don't touch them. Keep yourself, keep yourself. What you need to do, you need to come inside now as well. Let's get oh, inside. Oh, please, well, let's get it. Get that door shut. It's coming inside. It's seeping under doors. Oh, get it, get it nice and shut there. Put chuck that right. towel down. Nice, yeah, down. yeah, towels down, it's covered, it's stopped coming through. Come on, well, let's get upstairs. What? Oh, get upstairs where it's nice and sort of nice and toasty up there. It's nice. I mean, it's warm anyway, really, but it's nice and cosy up there. We can have, yeah, have yeah. a nice sit down. Oh. It's just having air to breathe, isn't it? At least we're above it now. Look at it down there, can't see out, can't see a dolphin, can't see beach. Jesus oh, Christ. Tell you what, it's annoying me is that them dolphins, we're going to have to do something about them. Oh, I don't oh. know what the bloody hell. Yeah, well, well, think of some Another day, our kid, another day. Another day, you know. But I mean, the thing is, you see, for them, I mean, if, if I were a dolphin, I'd be down in Australia, wouldn't you? I wouldn't be no, sort yeah. of like arsing around or, or, or one of these a nice foreign climb somewhere off the African coast sounds quite good, doesn't well, it? Well, it does nice. But saying that, we've got the weather at the moment. It is, it is nice out there. Yeah, well, it is nice. I like it. This is my kind of weather, is this, at the moment. But, you know, right. what you need now, you need some nice stories, don't you? Ooh, you've been casting out. You've been oh, gathering. I've been casting light out. It's absolutely fantastic. Lovely. Yeah. This is what so I need, a few tales. So I'll tell you what, well, let's get rolling, right, with something that's sort of like it for... for Right for this sort of year, you know. Uh, so it's uh, we got we got a story from the BBC here. I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. got anybody. I've, I've got a writer for it, so you can't take piss out of the name. <laughs> You'll be deleting them out now, <laughs> won't you? <laughs> but this is mystery of decorated ostrich eggs in British Museum is revealed. Oh, right? sounds juicy. So if you wanted an extravagant gift five thousand years ago, you might have chosen an ostrich egg. Now, some of these beautiful Easter egg-sized objects are in the London's British Museum. Now, the eggs are found in Italy, but their origins have been a mystery. You see, ostriches are not indigenous to Europe. Well, that's what I was thinking then. I thought, yeah. well, 5,000 years ago, it's a big swim to get an ostrich egg in it. It's, it's a massive swim. You know where I'm going to go back. <laughs> so in it. that Italy, it's not bad, is it? Because you've got Malta, you know, like Sicily, Malta, Africa. That's is it Af- right. They're from Africa, aren't they? Uh, from Africa, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it seems now what's happened is people across Europe, the Mediterranean and North Africa, they traded ostrich eggs up to 5,000 years ago. Wow. And and in the Bronze and Iron Ages, right? So all during that time, they were sort of trading these uh, highly, sort of highly prized eggs. 
Now, cool. um, yeah, and the, what, said, for, for for scramby eggs, like you know what I mean. For, <laughs> well, they, do you know what? I don't think they were. I don't think they were for giant scrambies. I think they were actually <laughs> traded as decorative objects. That's what it right, was. Yeah. So they were prized because of their beauty, which I think is an amazing thing for five thousand years ago. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so no it, telly, is there? You know what I mean? So you do need something to look at. Just <laughs> <laughs> well, slap down an ostrich egg. Look at that for three hour out. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's like the box set of their time was an ostrich egg. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a series. It's just a pack of six from local. <laughs> <laughs> and these eggs we see, these eggs were decorated in many ways. They were painted, adorned with ivory and precious metals, or covered in small glazed stones or other materials. Oh, so that's right. pretty weird, isn't it? You know, I think it's Especially quite with, like a bit of paint and all the rest of it. You think that's, yeah. that's, that's cool? Yeah, so Five thousand years ago, and all yeah. I mean, that's is it. that like Egyptian times? Isn't it? Is it? <laughs> Well, so, I think so. Even even a little bit previous, I, I would say so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's early, kind of like early dolls, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. it's really early. So it's like, but they're saying that the uh, the five eggs in the British Museum's collection are embellished with animals, flowers, geometric patterns, soldiers, and chariots. Cool. So I mean, I, I must admit, I want to look at them. I think they sound pretty uh, pretty cool to me. With that, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth a peek. So what's the is that the mystery soul then that they were trading in, like? Well, I think that's what the thought it was. Yeah, they realised that they are. But I think what the wonder for a lot of people is the fact that they have a great age and the intricacy of the decoration. And yeah. another thing is, it's how they got across there. They haven't actually fully discovered how they got across. They do know they must have been traded. They must have been trading by sea. They must have been boats and things like that. But it's yeah, yeah. so old and so kind of lost to antiquity that um, that they don't really know how they got across there. And I think that's that's amazing. It shows we think, don't we, that we know how everything was traded, how everybody got about. We think it only yeah, happened yeah. in recent times. But all those years ago, there's like these things going on, people travelling, you know. And it's... Life is high, yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I also, what I like about this particular story is uh, something's valued not because it has any sort of... It's not like it's a grain or meat or something you can drink. Yeah, it's yeah. just just because it's beautiful. And I think yeah, just that, yeah, you've never seen anything like it. You know, an egg, look at this egg. It's like all fancied up as well. You know what I mean? It would be, it'd be bizarre back then, wouldn't it? It's like, oh, my God, how big are your chickens? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, that's it. Like, it'd be like a narwhal tusk being sort of thought of as a, um, a, a unicorn horn, won't it? You yeah, know, sort yeah. Of similar sort of thing. It, it, it'll be it'll have been an absolute wonder. And I'm supposed to actually own one of these things and be able to show it off. We'll show sort of what great wealth you have and what sort of um, what high status individual you are. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. So I mean, if you got yourself an ostrich, we actually have one in our house. We've got one, so that must make you me got an very... ostrich egg. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Where do you yeah. get that from? Or British uh, Museum? <laughs> well, no, because actually, Carol, my wife, my wife, right. um, she she used to. Well, it's not an ostrich egg. It's, it's an emu egg she's got, right? Um, which is not as big, but it's always pretty, pretty bloody big. And she yeah. used to work on an, an emu farm, so she cool. uh, she she brought one of the eggs back. So is yeah. it still full then? No, no, no. What they do is the way they do it. They kind of they call, call it blowing the egg. So what they do is they drill just a tiny little <laughs> Hello. pinprick. Hello. <laughs> Saucy. <laughs> so what they do is they actually they, they drill a hole into it and they well, they call it blowing. They actually suck all the yolk and all the egg. Oh out mate, of it. this is gross. Is it, they're not even born yet. Give them chance. Talk about pedos. <laughs> they haven't even got out of egg. <laughs> Sucking and blowing on them. <laughs> 
<laughs> Poor little things. Basically, it's like so. Yeah, that's how, that's how they sort of create so they clean these shells out and then you have it again as a as a decorative thing. You know, is it pretty so, tough then? Is it you know? Is it one of them? You think Gee, careful with bloody emu egg, Jesus? Or is it quite a solid? Uh, I won't say throwing it about or out, but it's about as thick as China. You know what I mean? So right, it's not. It's yeah. not. It, well, in fact, it'll play a bit pottery, a bit like pottery. Yeah. yeah. So that you'd if, if I wanted to smash one over your head. It'd yeah. take a good old whack, and it'd yeah, hurt. It would, it would hurt. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you'd really know about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I and mean, it won't be. You won't want to go egging somebody's house with all these things because you just put bloody things through. <laughs> <laughs> just going back to it though, just on your opinion, do you reckon they were traded by boat? They're meeting up somewhere. They're doing the you know, doing the deals with boats, and that are oh, just some weird perchance that they've floated over. You know, like a oh, coconut de- or something like that. No, definitely boats. It's definitely boats. I like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And part of the story is, you see, that they didn't know whether they actually farmed ostriches either or whether people were just going out onto the plains and finding them and, you know, as being a rare thing. But I'm personally the opinion, I think they probably just found the the ostrich egg, they find the nest, take a couple of the eggs and then use them to trade. I think it's that way around. But, you know, but I do think they did come across on boats. Talking of boats, um, a good story popped up today on CNN about uh, the Venezuelan Navy, right? Which is a bit of a weird one, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it looks to me, it sounds like this is from, uh, this is a good name for you. This is uh, Rob Pichetta from CNN News. That's good. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good name for your little collection, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Not as good as Stamp or Staple and all that. No, no, it's not as good as them, but they're... (laughs) But what actually happened is... um, there's been a German cruise liner. It's been heading down to the South Pole kind of thing around the area. And yeah. the Venezuelan naval boat has kind of come out and he's taken umbrage with them being there. They don't like it, right? So the story goes like this. A Venezuelan naval boat picked and lost a fight with a passenger cruise liner <laughs> off the country's <laughs> northern coast. Oh, place. I feel bad for Venezuela, though. They seem lovely people, but they're ruled by a complete fucking idiot, you know what I mean? Oh, but is that right? Oh, he is, he's a yeah. dick, a proper dick, but go on. Uh, I think another guy, he's like a military junter. Yes, yeah, yeah. he's like yeah. some Gaddafi kind of wannabe. He's an absolute prick end. But, yeah. yeah. It says the proprietor of the German-owned RCGS Resolute cruise ship, right? So this ship's called the Resolute. Said its vessel had been uh, receiving maintenance in international waters on Tuesday morning when the armed Navy boat approached it and ordered it to change direction. So they wanted the cruise ship to enter port to be searched, but the captain of the cruise ship he refused, right? Saying that during the yeah, he said, well, especially during the uh, coronavirus pandemic, it wasn't safe for the ship or for the port. So they were sort of keeping the distance, right? Good on them. Yeah, but then the encounter escalated, right? When, according to the cruise company, the naval vessel opened fire on the unarmed cruise ship. Jesus, what? (laughs) So gunshots were fired, and shortly thereafter, the navy vessel approached the starboard side at speed and an angle of 
of 135 degrees and purposefully rammed the cruise oh ship Resolute. Oh my god, what a, what is going on here? That's yeah. international kind of like starting war. What the it hell? is, it absolutely is. So the Navy vessel continued to ram the starboard bow in an apparent attempt to turn the ship's head towards Venezuelan territorial waters, Jeez. the service says. So, however, what the Venezuelan ship didn't know is that the uh, cruise ship Resolute is reinforced with steel plating to help it navigate through the ice. <laughs> you don't mush with Germans, man, though. You, they've got an army, you're not like, Jesus, don't. <laughs> Take your time with it. <laughs> it says, so the Resolute sustained minor damage, not affecting the vessel's seaworthiness, but it occurs that the Navy vessel suffered severe damage while making contact with the ice-strengthened <laughs> ice bulbous bow of the ice-class expedition cruiser, and it started to sink. Oh, getting... Oh, yeah. that's what you get, lad. Lovely. <laughs> so eventually the cruise... Uh, the, the, eventually the boat sank and the cruise ship offered to stay on, uh, on <laughs> in the area to help with rescue efforts. <laughs> but, the, but the Venezuelan Navy declined that kind offer. Of. <laughs> oh, the shame. All swimming about and that red face. <laughs> What a fucking idiot. There you go, karma. Straight at you. Well, this is it, but you don't open fire on a nice little German cruise vessel, you know. But and the one, insanity one... of it, though, they're in international waters, they're going. They're on a scientific mission, and, like I say, with all the troubles going on, you shouldn't be going into ports. What a no, set of asses. The Germans know what they're doing. Now, one thing yeah. I will correct you about, though, is uh, they do have a navy. Uh, they do have an, uh, an army, Air Force, Air Force oh, navy. Oh, do they? Right, yeah, cool. yeah, they're, they're pretty tooled up of the Germans now. But right. a lot of the stuff they use their army for is a lot of peacekeeping stuff. They're, they're yeah, very yeah. high on the international sort of peacekeeping I suppose thing. on UN and all that sort of stuff, they will be there. Oh, good on them, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think they'll do it a third time. I think they're pretty good. <laughs> 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 they'll do them. it. <laughs> we won't mention what it is, but I don't think they'll do it a third time. <laughs> With gold and great storm. I never will play the wild rover no more on its nose. Nay, never. No, nay, never, no more. Will I play the wild rover? No, never. Well, staying, staying on a military angle, right, um, I've got one you might like here by Gareth Caulfield uh, on the website called The Register. And the, uh, and the headline is, uh, The French pensioner ejected from fighter jet after accidentally grabbing the bang seat handle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to see that so much. <laughs> What were you doing on plane anyway? Well, here we are. I'll give you a quick tale. So, an elderly and reluctant Frenchman was ejected from a French Air Force fighter <laughs> during a retirement day jolly and narrowly missed taking the pilot with him, an investigation report littered with unintentional howlers has revealed. So, the unnamed 64-year-old uh, was ejected from the two-seat uh. Raphael B from a height of two and a half thousand feet. Oh, my God. Is this fighter plane, then, you're saying? Yeah, he's like, all yes. that distance up, going at incredible speeds. Yeah, this is it, yeah. So, it was in March last year, after he accidentally grabbed the ejection seat handle to steady himself. Oh, God. 
God, oh, I suppose you are getting thrown about. Aren't you like, <laughs> you just this crunch. is it, you know. And <laughs> um, the report into it sort of like catalogued. It's been a bit of a comedy of er- errors, you see, because what had happened was is is a group of enthusiastic colleagues had uh, all chipped in to pay for this for him, right? As a bit of a send off when he retires, <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't even want to do it. You mean? Yeah, like, I'm well, doing what? It? You pay- no gold watch. I'm going up in what? <laughs> You know I'm scared well, of flying. Why? That's <laughs> how my wife died. <laughs> but but is he, he's like an employee of the defence contractor who makes these planes and stuff. You know, oh, right, so yeah. they'd so all got kind links. of yeah. So they're all sort of chipped in so you could get up in this fighter jet, right? It's a surprise <laughs> retirement gift. So and he wasn't keen though, right? Oh, but the, shit. Because the the unfortunate Frenchman had never expressed a desire to carry out this type of flight, in particular on that kind of plane. <laughs> <laughs> but they did it anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> It'll be all right, Jeff. Monsieur or Jeff, go on, get him. <laughs> yeah, well, this is easy. So, he's, 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 so he, uh, our pensioner, with his heart pounding at between 136 and 142 beats per minute, as recorded by his smartwatch, oh. underwent a quick medical exam from a doctor, right? Just a couple of hours before being shown... To, um, been shown by the pilot how to put on his safety gear. Unfortunately, <laughs> no one checked him as he clambered into the cockpit, meaning his helmet visor was up, which it shouldn't have been, his anti-G pants were not worn properly, and his helmet and oxygen mask were both unattached. Oh, my <laughs> God. You need those anti-G pants anyway, don't you? If you're getting blasted out of a plane, I need two pairs. <laughs> so then a, then a mechanic, his seat straps weren't tight enough either, so said, oh, then a mechanic God. just gave him a quick look over, gave him the thumbs up, stuck a GoPro to his head, <laughs> sent him on his way. <laughs> Oh, that's awful. So did he get out of it alive then or what? Well, things got worse when the pilot took off from northeastern France's airbase, right? So rather than the gentle ascent of 10 to 15 degrees um, that a normal airline passenger might experience, the Frenchman at the controls carried out a typical fighter jet departure and climbed at 47 degrees. Is that just straight up? (laughs) Yeah, generating a load factor of about plus 4 Gs. Oh, God, poor old... Bugger. And that's how yeah. you get... <laughs> I just want to go up. <laughs> so if you've ever been on have you ever been on the roller coaster at Alton Towers called Rita? No, I haven't no. Oh, really? I think it's called Rita Queen of Speed or something like this, right? This thing. It is just mental. Oh, and that God. absolutely maxes out at plus pot four point seven G's. Oh, so it's basically just been like in a super fast roller coaster straight away. Uh. So this guy's rattling around in his, in his straps and in his G-suit and his helmet's going all over the place. Oh, no they haven't got any oxygen, right? So he just reaches out, right, and grabs the trigger handle for the ejection set. Oh, shit. The one that they should have said, don't touch that, you know what I mean? Bless him. That's it. So he didn't know what would happen next thing, you know, he's blown out of the oh, cockpit. Oh, no. <laughs> have you got an age of this retiree? 64. Oh, God almighty, that's awful. So how long so down is it? You know, that must have been a quite a big parachute drop. I know, this is it. it apparently the ejection system is meant to fire both seats if one of the crew pulls the handle. Oh, so some, but something went wrong, so the pilot stayed in. He, all he knew about it was suddenly lid had blown off, his passenger had gone. Oh, my God. Can he fly it, though, with no bloody windows? Well, I don't know about that. I'd, I'd have thought something might have gone wrong. You know, because obviously you're travelling about five. 500 miles an hour and you know yourself if you stick your head out of a car window (laughs) have you seen dog you know when a dog gets it cheek and he's like (laughs) imagine the pilot's chops will be all over the place (laughs) (laughs) 
But yeah, so I think I think I think he survived us. It were all right. You, you know, think that, he what... survived? He's just blowing it there with him in air coming down. I think you were all right. No, well, uh, looking looking down, he did survive. He yeah. wasn't happy though. He wasn't happy. Let's what? put it that way. Oh man, at least he won't have to go back to work. I bet they were all pissing themselves up, <laughs> all colleagues and that. Like God Almighty, do you see that? <laughs> oh no, that's it. I like the fact that these remained unnamed as well. You know, you just yeah, think, oh, yeah, yeah. This shame. Let's close a book on that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Let's forget about that. Tell you what, I can't. Older I get, I I don't even want to go in a roundabout now. I'll spew up, man. I can't handle getting going all circular, getting all dizzy, getting on a bloody no, fairground ride. No way. I'm not doing any of that malarkey now. No, chance. no. You're getting not, in a fighter plane at 64. <laughs> no. Well, there seems to be something goes do on, doesn't there? Something seems to go on later on where sort of like you get old people sort of deciding who oh, wants to go on a parachute jump because yeah. I'm 78, and you just think no. I'm a, Maybe just because they don't want to live anymore. <laughs> I met a kid in Thailand who'd been on a parachute jump and he was still white after it. He said they went up in the shittest plane ever. They jumped out of a plane, you know, they pulled parachute. In the parachute, it had holes. It was, you know, it no. was that old. It was like some Second World War parachute. He got down safely, but he said he was looking up thinking, oh shit, look at the, the cheapness no. and age of it. You just think, bungee oh jumping, same. If you want some, I don't know, do something. Hell, you don't have to jump off a pissing bridge and put your lives in some slacker surf dude who's like, yeah, you like to bungee, huh? Like, no, I fucking don't. I don't trust you either, pal. You know what I mean? I just don't know. Well, what, what we need to do is we, we need to keep me and people like me and you, we need to sort of stick to what we know, don't we? Exactly, That's what the thing mate, is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the thing we know about is is crisps. Oh, I do like a pack of crisps. What's what's your favourite crisp? I'm up and down. I love uh, Seabrook, you know what I mean? And it's either, oh, it's either right. salt it's and vinegar or prawn cocktail for me. Oh, salt and vinegar with Seabrook. I must admit, I'm a, bit, I'm a big fan of things like that. Love them. But what's your what's your thoughts on Walkers? I like Walkers. Yeah, cheese and onion. Yeah, yeah, yeah quite like cheese them. and variety, onion. Yeah, yeah, variety pack. But what what colours the pack? What colours the pack of a cheese and onion of the cheese and onion crisps of Walkers? Blue. Ah, right. But what did they used to be? Oh, what? Yeah. Oh, well, well do... I know what you mean, because the older I got, I remember that there was a sudden change in my life when I went for a pack of crisps, opened it, and I thought, wait a minute, blue should be like salt and vinegar, and green should be more like cheese and onion, Back if I remember it, but go on, what... what, what... You said there was a definite point there, can, can you pinpoint a year or time? I'm going to say three years ago. Three years ago, right. Well, this is the thing, you see, because there's a thing called the Walker's Crisp Conspiracy uh-huh. that has people convinced that we're in an alternate reality. Oh, is this so a this love is... a Mandela effect? Give me some Mandela. It's an av- it's a Mandela effect, oh, right? Oh, So two-thirds of the people interviewed on this particular research, uh, including Gary Lineker, the face of oh, Walker's yeah. Crisps, believe the company's salt and vinegar packets were once blue and their cheese and onion packets were green. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And apparently, they're all wrong. It has never changed. No, it's Mandela effect. We've just slipped into that slightly different universe at the moment, obviously with all this weird shit going on. And one point is, is the crisp packets, we all remember it. Gary Lineker says it, it's gospel. It's gospel. Well, that's what I figure as well. I must admit, I'm in agreement with you there. I'm in absolute agreement with you there. This is a story from Augustine Surf, which is a good name for your little collection. That's a lovely name, is that, yeah? 
And she's uh, she's done a podcast called The Walker Switch. Fucking hell, a whole this. podcast. Yeah, it's about <laughs> six part or something like this. It's really interesting, right? And so the way she puts it is this. She says, the wrong flavour crisps can cause a ripple effect throughout the whole of world history. So that's Mark Garnett, senior political lecturer at the University of Lancaster, on a mystery that's been circulating for some time. That a mystery that Augustine stumbled upon one night in the pub. So she was tucking into a bag of Walker's salt and vinegar crisps, ripped to the seams and spread inviting the other table, when she lamented that the Walkers had switched the colour of salt and vinegar and cheese and onion packets from blue to green and green to blue, respectively. Ooh. So she thought this is common knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah. But then her friend had said, no, this has never happened. So she thought, right, right, triumphantly, whips out a phone to prove it, right? Yeah. Opens up the uh, Walkers uh, Walkers on Q&A section, or Frequently Asked Questions section of their website. And this is what it says. The question says, why did you change your packaging for salt and vinegar and cheese and onions so they're in the wrong colours? And the answer is, contrary to popular belief, Walkers cheese and onion has always been in blue packets. And salt and vinegar has always been in green packets. They have They don't have a plan to change this. And it's signature to their brand. That's harsh shit, is that? That is proper harsh shit. I'm not, now, I'm this, not having it. Now I've listened to the I've listened to the web the uh, the podcast myself already, and she has interviewed people about it, and it's absolutely fascinating because everybody puts it around between five and fifteen years ago that this happened. Yeah. Quite often, people actually say it happened in the mid nineties. Ah. It was this kind of change around that people sort of like, uh, they, they just swapped for for whatever reason. But the weird thing that goes on from here as well, people can remember the advert. Is it so an advert this... about the change or an advert with the colour packets on it? And uh, What people remember, it generally works around there being a football match and... There's all one side is like all in blue and whatever it is, you know what I mean? And these two people rock up and take the coats off and they're in the wrong colour. Right. So, for example, they're in sort of a green strip, whereas everybody else is now wearing blue. Yeah, and yeah. they're saying, you know, saying, look, don't get it wrong, we've changed our colours. That's the kind of theme of what this advert was. But they've interviewed dozens of people, and dozens of people remember this advert. Everybody seems to remember, well, two-thirds of the people I spoke to, remember that it was the other way around. And there was a swap sometime in the 90s. Because I, I, it always makes sense to me. It's like um, the pinky kind of packet is prawn cocktail because it looks like a pinky prawn, doesn't it? The it gr- looks like a pinky prawn. Exactly. Yeah. The green is a bit cheese and onion. If you if you smashed an onion and cheese together, it's going to be a bit greeny colour, isn't it? It makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, well, this is it. Yeah. And the salty blue. You know what I mean? The salty sea blue is salt and vinegar. It just that's how it's always been. I'm sure. Even like what sort of the Famous Chris brand. I can't remember the the, the, the rivals. They're a bit underdogs now. Well, there was the Smiths Chris. Yeah, Smiths. I'm thinking you know. of. I'm sure they follow that format as well. Don't they? you know brown for beef? You know what I mean? Yeah, this um, is it. It well works out. The color. The color is a color system that we all agree is right. But yeah, you don't need I to mean, read. Even, you could just yeah. put your hand out, and there's a color of that taste is there, isn't it? Yeah, but it just seems to me that Walkers have been a bit bombastic in saying that they believe not our colors are salt and vinegar is green and cheese and onion is blue and blah blah. And that's just is and I think no, it's wrong. And even at one point, there was actually a campaign by Smith's Crisps to say, "Come on now, Walkers, yeah. change, change back to how it used to be." Wow, they've said this in an advert. I so th- even another company's calling them out. I'm going to boycott them. I'm boycotting Walkers <laughs> from now on. That's it. Till the truth. Oh, is well, back. I won't blame you. 
I won't blame you one bit. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it... <laughs> one man, well, can, one is, Benny can make a difference. Yeah, well, this is how it has to be. I think I think we all need to take a bit of a stand here. But it actually, so I would recommend listening to the the Walker Switch I'll because it whirl, even yeah. goes it goes so far as to the actually asked Gary Lineker and he huh? said, "Well, yeah, it's always been like that." And when they said that the Walkers are denying it, he said, "Walkers crisps are lying." <gasps> right. So I think, but they can't find any evidence for it. But they'd go so far as to interview a member of the Illuminati. <laughs> it goes that high up. <laughs> it goes that high up. You won't believe it. It's a great. It's a great podcast. Yeah, I found it on iTunes. I'd give it a whirl if I were you. Oh, I'm listening um, to that this hour. Yeah, that's I, excellent. I love how deep you it have goes. listened to that. I'm and big, you come back to me. Yeah, because I'm a massive uh, Mandela fan. You know what I mean? Or not. not the real one, but the Mandela Effect fan, you know what I mean? Because they're out there, innit? There's some really weird shit with that. Yeah, I'll be oh, giving absolutely. That. Yeah. This might be the key yeah. to unravel the mystery of it all. I think I think it is, but I can also think of um, one way that could destroy the evidence. Eat hot crisps. Well, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> but there's another way you see because the scientists now have created a mutant enzyme that recycles plastic bottles in hours. So I'd imagine not only would do they probably do crisp packets as well, wouldn't it? So a plastic enzyme. What are you saying that it like eats it, eats plastic? It's a plastic. Well, I'll go monster. into this for you. Yeah, this, this going to this is from the environmental editor of the Guardian, Damien Carrington. That's a good name, isn't That's it? That's good, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So, it's a mutant bacterial enzyme that breaks down plastic bottles for recycling in hours has been created by scientists. The enzyme, originally discovered in a compost heap of leaves, reduced the bottles to chemical building blocks that were then used to make high-quality new bottles. Wait up, they found in- something in a compost heap. So, so some fucking, what, I don't believe that, kid. you got to go deeper there. So they just so happened, like, oh, let's go up for a plastic-eating enzyme. Let's have a look in this compost heap. Look, I found it. Whoa. Messing with me, eh? Well, I think I think what it is, I think they're ferreting through all sorts of stuff all the time. I think they're digging into compost heaps and looking at all sorts of things. And I think behind looking... and fucking yeah, they're behind prodding around with a pen, behind see what they find. All those places yeah, ferreting in your bin. They're <laughs> <laughs> looking at your armpit, madam. Yeah, and I think they probably find lots of different moulds and things. And then they sort of like it's like anything. Isn't it? It's like penicillin. Penicillin, how that was discovered. You know, there's a bit of mould gets in somewhere. A scientist gets a bit intrigued by it as a prod on a poke, feeds it a plastic bottle, and next thing you know, you got a brand new one. Jesus. So it breaks it down into, what, like some slushy... Po- I don't get it at all, any of these. Well, let's take a deeper dive. Let's have a little look at it, what happens then. So, the scientists analyse the enzyme and introduce mutations to it to improve its ability to break down the PET plastic. You know, like pet bottles. Yeah, yeah. Right? So what it does, they make it... It goes to a particular temperature, which is 72 degrees C, so they create like a... Like a, a, a I don't know what you'd call it, like a cistern or a big sort of unit. And all these sort of like, um, these little things are in it, these enzymes are in it, and then they feed the little bottle shreds in. And it just breaks it down to the building blocks of plastic 
needed to rebuild clean, perfect plastic bowls. Wow. Because I think, you know, when, when you when you put sort of like a load of plastic in together, you can only make things like maybe bin bags out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's all slushy, grey, crappy. Yeah, yeah, I yeah well, this makes Squeaky new clean. food... Gr- yeah, it makes new food... And it... Right, how long do you think it takes to do this? So the team used the optimised enzyme to break down a tonne of waste plastic bottles, right? So how long do you think a tonne of plastic bottles will take to be broken down by these things? I reckon they need to simmer that for about a week or something. Ten hours, mate. Fucking hell. Ten hours. That is the best news ever in a way. I'm a bit disturbed I mean, that the mutating bloody enzymes in this kind of climate, but if it's doing breaking down plastic, you know, we need it, don't we? This is a need, a must need. Well, this is it, you see. And apparently this uh, company called Carbios has made a deal with a biotechnology company called called Novazymes, <laughs> which is like something from Robocop. Yeah. <laughs> and he's going to produce the new enzyme at a scale, uh, at scale using fungi. So they've got like fungi, and it's going to be able to make this enzyme, right? And he said the cost of the enzyme was just 4% of what it would cost to make fresh plastic out of oil. Wow. So that's amazing. You know, I think that's absolutely incredible. So really, but the only thing- go on. Yeah, I was going to say you could have really some like um, water world type people out in the sea, kind of collecting, you know, harvesting plastic, you know, like hungrily gathering it up, like they're collecting oil in it. Really, you know what I mean? It could be worth some of that recycled plastic. Oh, I definitely think it could, you know. But I, I also the thing I worry about is what happens if this thing kind of goes wild. I mean, it's it's stabilized at seventy two degrees centigrade, which is pretty damn hot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But. But what happens if it sort of like managed to, to live at say like twenty five degrees and it can get out and just sort of go nom 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 oh, nom like nom, a big your plastic blob or something? Oh, there's the next move. We need to make this film. Now. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds. And the look of the light out the lighthouse is not much plastic. It's all kind of stone and wood and metal. Exactly. Isn't it, you see? That's, could, could so we we'll do be all right. Plastic, really. You know what I mean? When you look at it, it is a bit shit, isn't it? I, th- I think so. I think that's what we need to do. We need to look at the alternatives because there was a time not that long ago that we were all out without plastics. Yeah. It's only been around for about, what is it, 110 years, something like that. Yeah, it's all the cheap so it... stuff, isn't it, really, that you can hopefully make out of metal if it want. Yeah, I like that. Oh, Release the blob, yeah, yeah. I say. <laughs> Release the blob. Let's just <laughs> Where were that? I, I say it's a warning to history. We we know that's the next big thing to come is uh, um, a plastic eating blob that's going to take over, and I think that could be a good thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but something that might be a little bit less sort of uh, less welcome is this. Uh, there's an old woman here, and well, I say old, not she's Jane, sixty-one, has discovered something, you know, in a garden. Right. And would you like to hear about yeah. this? And it isn't a blob. It, it isn't plastic. It's something else. It's it UK. Where have you cast your beam? Well, we're in the we are we're in the UK, right? So this is a story from the Daily Mirror by Luke Matthews, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is about a churchgoer who tried to identify what she believed to be was a vintage bottle stopper, right? <laughs> and she she was only she was only known as Jane. That's the only name we've got, right? And she she posted images of the unknown item to a glass collector on Facebook, so uh, asking for help. After it was discovered washed up in her garden following a heavy storm. So Jane, 61, wrote, um, I got a friend of my sister that came across a solid piece of glass. Since she can't figure out what it is, she reached out to me 
And now I'm reaching out to all of you, mm-hmm. hoping to get an idea of what it is. The only thing coming to mind is either a bottle stopper for a decanter or a chess piece. I'm guessing this. <laughs> the shape of those bottle decanters is a little bit more like a butt plug. Am I anywhere near it? <laughs> well, it's 4.5 inches tall, 1.5 inches in diameter at the fat part. Oh. And 1.7 inches at the base. 1.7. What does it smell like? (laughs) (laughs) You're asking all the important questions here. (laughs) So reading through some of the less cryptic replies, um, somebody had put, it's a stopper, just not for a bottle. (laughs) (laughs) So she eventually realised that they were in possession of a sex toy. <laughs> a glass one, though, shit. <laughs> she said, she updated the post by saying, I'm thankful I know nothing of this world that uses products such as this, and quite frankly, I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you... But she does say, they now found there isn't enough soap in the world to get rid of this. <laughs> The taint that they have. Oh, I love from that they've been handling it, you know, putting it up to the lights. And, oh, it's a beautiful design. It's been up someone's trumper for ages. Yes, it doesn't smell like old pots, does it? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's definitely got like a, a, a full bodied odour to it. <laughs> very, very musty, gamey odour. Yes. You can fit one of them in a, in, a, um, in a wine bottle, though, could you, surely? They're a bit chubbier than well, that, aren't they? What, what girth would, of it? Would, Did you have measurements at girth? The girth of it is, it, well, it only has its fattest 1.5 inches 1. in diameter. 5, but yeah. but the way it looks, I've had a little look at it. So now if you think of like a decanter bottle, and it's he has a stopper on the bottom, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Excuse the pun. <laughs> but it looks like that, but without a stopper. So you can see where yeah. she's made a bit of a slip up. <laughs> you know what I mean? I love but it. But bless her, you know, I mean, you, you never know. She's saying she doesn't like it, she's not interested. But, you know, after a couple of glasses of wine herself, she might think to herself, do you know what? Let's give it a whirl. Well, it's quite a journey, though, isn't it? Just to find it in your garden. If someone's just been walking around with it in and just thought, you know what, I can do without this, and just popped it out and threw it in the garden. It's just... <laughs> popped it out? I'll just give a quick push. <laughs> Pop! <laughs> just drop the phone and be like, oh, where did that go? <laughs> well, she's claiming it was a bit of bad weather, so it got washed into a garden. I think, to be honest, I think it's... You know, mm. I think they protest too much, don't they, really? I think they know where it's come from. <laughs> I love that she's done the old, you know, she's got a face in the internet. Uh, five minutes of fame, just about a butt plug. <laughs> I don't want to know about this world. You're in it now, love. You're in it now, right? I will take it off your hands. Obviously, giving something a good sniff is sometimes the answer, and you can find what you want, sometimes perhaps not so much. <laughs> but here's, here's one I know is going to be close to your heart, Ooh. right? So the four, the 500 million-year-old reason behind the unique scent of rain. The scent right? of rain, like before it comes, or that, you know, that's... Yeah, go on then, I like it. It's that, that thing. So what it is, so this is by Rich Harrody for the New Atlas website, yeah. right? 
Now, new research from an international team of scientists is suggesting that instantly recognisable earthy smell yeah. after rain is released by bacteria trying to attract a particular arthropod as a way to spread its spores. Well, rewind, now, rewind. What's a, what's that word you said? Right, so what it is, so it goes, it's releasing bacteria, right, yeah. to attract an arthropod. Now, arthropod is things like a woodlouse is an arthropod. All right. Oh, give me some so more. So there might have been a tank. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's basically trying well, to... Well, like a caterpillar, is that one? Uh, no, 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 that's a caterpillar. All right. Uh, <laughs> what about um, the centipede? Um... Don't think so. I think basically what we're talking about is like a like a woodlouse. Just think of a woodlouse. And that's it. The but, whole thing of smell arranged is just for woodlouse. No, what it is, it's what it's trying <laughs> to do is the bacteria in the soil, right? Yeah. As the rain hits it, it creates a scent. So this sort of arthropod will come across. It's like a mould, right? right? So then it will come across and feed on the mould, and probably snuffling amongst it. Yeah. And it, what it does then, it, it gets the spores on its shell and on its sort of carapace, yeah, yeah. which is its, its armour. Then it'll go scuttling off, right, and snuffling amongst some more of the other spores, but somewhere else. And that's how it spreads its spores. Oh, like some horrible, disgusting bee. You know what I mean? It's like a bee's a lovely bee yeah. around, and then you get that really dirty woodlouse <laughs> scurrying about. But yeah, this is it. You've got this thing scurrying around, you know. Um, the scientists have long been fascinated by the unique odour that appears when it rains. The scent is particularly prominent when the first rain of season hits dry soil. Ah. So two Australian researchers named the odour Petricor after an influential study in the 1960s suggested a particular oil is produced by certain plants during dry periods and then released into the air when it rains. It's fascinating, I like that, yeah. It's good, isn't it? So one major component of Petricor is an organic compound called geosmin. So scientists have known for some time that a common genus of bacteria known as Streptomyces produces geosmin. Virtually all species of Streptomyces release geosmin when they die. But until now it has been unclear exactly why the bacteria generates this distinctive aroma. So that's what's happening. So this thing's actually sort of like um, producing this, right? So that it can attract something to come and be on it, sort of, or get on it. <laughs> so they suspected that they were signalling to something, and the most obvious thing would be some animal or insect that might help distribute the streptomyces spores. So across a number of labs and field experiments, they research the researchers discovered geosmin specifically attracts a small type of tiny arthropod called a springtail. So studying the antenna of the springtails the researchers discovered the organisms can directly sense geosmin. So they're getting their springtails, is that what they're dipping in and all that muck and then the they're bringing it up, you know, they're dipping the springtails in. That's into it. right. Mm. <clears throat> so, what's happening is the streptomyces are serving as food for the springtails, right? Yeah, yeah. So, while they're getting there and they're sort of like munching away on it, thinking nom 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 nom, they're getting it all over themselves. But these springtails are called springtails for a reason because they have like a, literally a springtail, so they can point, they travel great distances, just wool and flick of the tail. That's cool. <laughs> so, these little fuckers hop off. Wherever, and that's how this stuff sort of like spreads. So, and I think that's absolutely amazing. So yeah. really, worldwide, all right, they might not have a springtail. We might have a woodlouse in Australia. They've got a springtail. I don't know, bloody Belgium. They've got somewhere else. But the whole world has got that. Is following that format of that smell of rain. Is 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 doing it from such a big 
smell in the air to those tiny little creatures of Belial. Well, this is it, because that's right, That that is the reason for it. It's that particular, the uh, streptomyces is everywhere in the soil, apparently. Mm. And um, and it's it's all over the place, and it's obviously spread very successfully because of the springtail. Now, the springtail is an ancient creature in itself, so this was about half a billion years ago, 500 yeah, million yeah. years ago. This thing was about, and they're still around now. Wow. So such a successful formula is still working. Why change? So you've got to admire that. But they've already found, you see, that these, um, there's, a, there's something in Streptomyces which is toxic to other organisms, such as fruit flies and nematodes, which are like types of worm. Yeah. So it's, it, they've really got it down. It's only springtails are the only one that can successfully feed on it. Excellent. So I think they've nailed it. Wow. So when you're smelling the air when it's raining, you see they're getting all sexed maybe up. They're getting like, oh, maybe that's up. it. Well, maybe my springtail's yeah, getting are. well hard. <laughs> well, we don't. We don't know how far back our genetic genetic ancestry goes, does yeah, it? Yeah. Maybe, just maybe, we're a little bit springtail ourselves. Mm. So we're getting a little sniff of this. A bit of an echo we're thinking, in our lizard brain. Oh yeah, we're we're getting um nom nom nom. It's lunchtime because all I want now is some streptomyces, and I want to spring off on my great big <laughs> erect tail. <laughs> yeah, I want to rub it all over myself. That was From there now, um, I think the best thing, because we've gone really small and really low, get down to the ground, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. What we need to do now, we need to get the lamp back up, we need to grind it into space again. yes, spacey time, love it. Grind that puppy up. Spacey (laughs) time. Yep, it's pointing straight up now. And do you know where it's pointing? It's pointing at one of your favourite things. It's pointing at the moon. Oh, I love the moon. The moon. So, the moon. But the, the, the plan that NASA has for it, you won't be able to ever see. Ah, even though it's gigantic. There's someone on the dark side at moon, a moon base on the dark side at moon. I'm going to ah, say. Ah, right. Well, I'll let you know. NASA's plan to turn the moon into a telescope makes it look like the Death Star, right? <laughs> cool. <laughs> so this has been given the thumbs up as hey. this. So newly funded. Yeah. Well, they have a lot of different concepts so it's been given a cautious thumbs yeah, up yeah. so I'll, I'll run you through it so a newly funded concept envisions a kilometre wide radio telescope built inside a crater on the far side of the moon yeah, yeah. now this is a story by Becky Ferreira for Vice magazine so they're like young and hip heart of yeah, Vice it's a young hip name as right. well there yeah, it is he? Becky Ferreira. She's on the street, it, isn't she? Man. That report, you know. <laughs> she's oh, like, yeah, she's yeah, she's she's like yeah, she's like a, a, a an ambitious young news hound, <laughs> yeah. isn't she? She dresses like a Charlie's <laughs> Angel all the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what you got for me, Becky Ferreira? <laughs> well, I got mad plans to turn the moon into a Death Star. <laughs> so the far side of the moon is a land of quiet mystery, because it always faces away from Earth. All the noisy radio transmissions that we humans blast out nah, never reach that part of the don't moon. Go around corners, you're right, in it, yeah, quiet. Yeah, that's that. it, you see. So it's nice and quiet, you see. So scientists have dreamed of capitalising on this unique radio silence for decades, and NASA has now bought the, brought the vision 
one step closer to reality by funding a proposal to build a radio telescope inside a crater on the far side of the moon. Wow. So the proposed observatory would be one kilometre in diameter, making it the largest filled aperture radio telescope in the solar system. (laughs) So, wow, I love it, right? So it's going to be called the Lunar Crater Radio Telescope, the LCRT, and the proposal is the brainchild uh, of, oh, Christ, here we go. Saptashi Bandiopadiai, right? An English chap, though. A robot. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. We might, might very well be. <laughs> but it's a robotic technologist, right? Ah, yeah. At NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is obviously a very, very famous uh, lab over there in America. The LCRT was selected for initial Phase 1 funding, which means it only gets £125,000, but that's the sort of funding you get to say, right, OK, maybe have a look at this. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So they're just going to have a little look at it, and they're just going to think to themselves, well, yeah, it's a possibility. We could, we could perhaps run with this one, you know. So the, it's still in its very early stages, but the whole concept is obviously grabbing kind of the imagination. Yeah, yeah. So Bandio Padiai, right? He envisions <laughs> building the... El- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It does sound like the uh, it does sound like the sort of like punchline to an Irish racist <laughs> yeah, it joke, does, doesn't yeah. it? Really. <laughs> so Bandio Padiai, right? It sounds like a Japanese <laughs> Irish, you know, like a mix. <laughs> yeah, like it sounds like a nickname for boys, to be honest. <laughs> Bandio Padiai envisions build, <laughs> building the LCRT in a crater that measures about three to five kilometers in diameter. The telescope's wire mesh scaffolding could be delivered and erected by wall climbing robots. Oh, yes. Yes, please. And they've even got one already. It's called the NASA's Duaxle Rover, right? Which could be capable of scaling the vertical slopes of the crater. Super cool. Can I I inject one here, though? I don't don't think it's the same story, but it's too uh, similar not to say it because they're on about how to build things on the moon. Uh, and they're on about, you know, like uh, 3D printing and all that sort of stuff, and like travelling, yeah, yeah. getting to and fro the moon, you're obviously dropping off supplies, and they're thinking, right, you know, it's going to be a critical part of it is 3D printing. But you need like a, I'm not, I'm going to get the name wrong here, coagulant or something? Is that a right, is that a word? Oh, no, that, that's like... That. That's exactly oh, right. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Say, I can't believe I said that. That's a fucking. That's well, a one in a million. <laughs> anyway, with the run of our, uh, you know, transporting water up there or anything to get it, you know, liquefied, is a is a fucking ball ache. It costs so much money to bring up. So they're thinking, wait, yeah. up, all we've got to do is trying to power it on piss. You know what I mean? Because we're bringing P- the water. Piss. Yes, we're bringing the water up for the humans anyway up there. They're going to be pissing all the time. It's going to be a bit of a waste if we finally tune it so that the piss is useful in building things in the moon. <laughs> now, only last week that came out, so it's topical. Well, I, I think I think the, the 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 use of any waste materials people make is going to be essential, not just in space, yeah. but here as well, isn't it? I mean, that's one of the most important things we need to be doing is looking at how we can kind of, you know, not be as wasteful. Well, like build a shed out of my own caca. <laughs> <laughs> don't think it'll go right well for the street, but I know what you're saying. Well, d- to be honest, I looked into that. Sort of. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily cack, but cack can be introduced to it. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's, a, there's a method of building, right, which you're going to like. It's called rammed earth. Mm. Right. So what you do is you just get ordinary mud. You can incorporate shit into it, because I know like a lot of African tribes, um, not necessarily their own shit, they use cow shit. And the good thing about things like it, or cattle shit, yeah, yeah. 
is because it's got fibrous matter already in it as well, so you can sort of yeah, mix that. Yeah, get you a lot with, of grass and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, the husks yeah. and stuff, yeah. Yeah, but there's stuff I saw with rammed earth. What you do is you create like a, what's called a form, which is like a couple of wooden walls going up, yeah. and then it's almost like making like a big brick shape. Then you fill this form full of mud, and you just compact it, you ram it, so it becomes <laughs> solid. What's it called again? Rammed, rammed earth. earth. Don't be putting that into Pornhub, but make sure it's into Google. <laughs> <laughs> We don't want any of that. That to be ditty, <laughs> won't it? So, but there's, but so yeah, using our own waste product and waste materials and things, you need to, it's incredibly important. And it, n- nothing more so than on other planets where you, that's potentially some of the only resources you have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's you know you've got to really look into it. I think it'd be good that. Yeah. But um, you see the uh, some of the other things that in addition to the LCRT telescope, NASA's been granted initial funding, right? To more than a dozen other futuristic missions, which include swarms of gravity hoppers, oh, right, that could explore small celestial bodies, right. So these are just little probes and drones right, that go. Yeah. You know, like off, like off um, Empire Strikes Back, yeah. little exploratory <laughs> drones like that. Sweet. And an antimatter braking system for interstellar travel. Wowzers. So, you know, they're just looking at all kinds I of shit. I love the shit they're on about. You know, those ones have got those gigantic sails, and, you know, they're literally sailing on solar wings. Solar sails. Like, yeah, solar sails. I love stuff yeah. like that. You know, scale of it, and it's going back to sailing, right? You know, the ocean being the stars. It's just, oh, I love it, mate. I've been watching too really, much Star really elegant Trek original series <laughs> no, recently. No, not at all. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think it's really elegant solutions. Yeah, yeah. So I think they're elegant solutions, and I'm all for them. I think it's a brilliant thing. Uh, and I'm with you. I, I just think that's what we should be looking at, rather than just um, uh, jet fuel blasting yeah. sort of huge high-powered thing. You've got to look at these gentle options Massive and potential. And I, think I heard it a bit ago that you're a humankind. If you just take away combustion, you're explosions away from us. We can't invent fuck all without an explosion. You look at our greatest yeah, things, yeah. it's all fucking blowing shit up. We're like bloody orcs or something, man. But yeah. Yeah, we need gentler sort of ways of doing things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enough, you're talking about explosions. Um, you've brought me back around. I've done a little bit more research for oh, you. Nice. Um, the secret nuclear bunkers in and around Leeds. Oh, sweet, because I didn't do any of my own work, so I'm glad you did yours. <laughs> Good luck. Oh, it's all right. It's all right. This, this is by the Yorkshire Evening Post. It's the, the, the newsroom, so they've had a few teams on yeah, this. Yeah. During the Cold War, detailed plans were made by the British government to coordinate both military and civil responses to a nuclear attack. And what happened was there was a Leeds war room, oh, right? Sweet. There was the Leeds war room originally was it? Uh, there was no, uh, contrary to popular belief, there were no public shelters built to withstand nuclear war. So nothing for the general yeah, public. Cheers, government. It would simply, yeah, thanks very much. So they couldn't, they couldn't possibly provide enough for the civilian population. Instead, bunkers were constructed in major cities to hold a select group of government and local authority staff who would run what remained of the country from these underground nerve centres. In Leeds, War Room Region 2 was built on land, right? Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It was built on land off... Off Otley Road, right, in Lawnswood. Oh, right. So it's only in Lawnswood, oh. yeah. So it's only at the road, you know. Oh, it's a few miles from Kraken yeah, Cove, yeah. but it's like it's... General. I mean, if you remember where if you remember where Four Boys Sweet Shop yeah, was yeah. when we got caught nicking, uh-huh. um, it, it was... Uh, it was that neck at Wood, It was one of a group... 
Yeah, it's that neck of the woods. It's near there. So it was one of a group of 13 two-storey reinforced shelters built from 1952 onwards. And they were intended to act as communications outposts for hand-picked officials who would have had enough food and recycled oxygen to last several weeks. Ah. Right? So, yes, it's like, so they'd have this almost like a mini government in this bunker, right? So what would have happened is, like, in each of these, one of these um, 13 buildings, 13 cabinet ministers would have been flown from London in the either hours or days before a nuclear attack was thought, so they could get bunker down, ready to sort of lead a post-apocalyptic country. <laughs> oh, that is mental. Yeah. And leads it so, so, so they, they had, had other ones around the around England, but that's just one particular one. Yeah. Well, we were War Room Region Two, so we were actually the, the sort of London was the first God. one. We were region two. We were sort of like going to be the sort of we would have Second been like the centre because was well. If you think about it, Leeds is a very central place. You can reach everything around yeah, it. Yeah. So sort of equidistance, sort of up to Scotland, yeah, uh, down to London, and we're also far enough away from London. We're fairly safe, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, so each of these bunkers has a hospital, canteen, telephone exchange, and dormitories, as well as a filtration system to purify radioactive air. Around 100 people inside the bunker would have tried to restore services such as roads, electricity, coordinating food supplies, and police and military teams on the ground. Now, although it cost an awful lot of money to make these things, they became obsolete almost immediately. Because we only knew that sort of nuclear bombs could get to certain power, but of course... It went from, say, like a megaton bomb oh. to sort of 50 megatons. And, and then they started to realise that these were sort of like really weren't any good. They weren't yeah, just going to get evaporated as well. Yeah, so it's like uh, a new network. So what happened was these were kind of abandoned. And um, and it was too small. They needed sort of a larger bunkers. It wasn't sort of ambitious yeah. enough. So a new network of larger bunkers was called Regional Government Headquarters were built instead. And the Leeds bunker was downgraded in the in status, and then the new nerve center was built in Shipton, oh. near York. What in yeah, so it's, it's, <laughs> Well, I don't. I must admit, I don't know exactly where it is. It's something we need to look yeah. up. But uh, other ones that was in the area was the Leeds Regional Grid Control Center. And this was uh, one for like uh, the electricity grid to keep the electricity running. Yeah. And it's a place, an area called. Roth, it was in Rothwell. Was yeah. that one? Uh, and it's uh, and they've got a Royal Observer Corps monitoring post as well. Now I'm trying to find out where that is. Oh, that's over at the post surrounding Leeds. We're at Barrick and Elmet, Harewood, Geisley, Bramley, Hunslet, Barkston Ash, and Boston Spa. Ah. So there you go. This, but they were all over the place, man. That's crazy. So they're all used for different things. Yes, yeah, so there's loads of them. Absolutely loads well, of them. Just going so, off it, uh, you know, just down from Crack and Cove, when you start getting inland a little bit, and you go near Bankhouse Pub up near Pudsey. Uh, yeah. There's big air raid shelters there, I found out. That's the only homework I did, but I don't know. I haven't investigated yet, but they said, I don't know if it's just Second World War ones or something bigger, but uh, that might have a little worth a sniff round. Well, I know I know around that area there, if you go across to what was out from the opposite bank, if you like, to what is called Post yeah. Hill, there was, at the top of there, there was a military uh, anti-aircraft. Yeah, I have heard that it's so high up, isn't it, yeah. So that what they might be calling sort of the, it'd probably be bunkers, yeah. not for nuclear uh, war, ammo. but probably just for ordinary. Well, yeah, that, well, that's you might have hit the nail on the head. They might just be ammo yeah, dumps, yeah. but also for for any troops that are stationed in the area, you know, that might be the uh, might, that might be the thing.
something that in those bunkers there's no fear of happening to you, did you know? There's no fear of you getting fat. No. Because, you know, you're on limited rations, yeah, aren't true. you? Yeah, So it's getting a little bit late here at Kraken Cove now, so what what I think we'll do, we'll just finish up with a nice little story oh, for you. Oh, nice. I like a story. Yeah. A fat polar bear <laughs> that is 30 stone overweight. <laughs> Get some flattering nickname from the locals. <laughs> is he in a zoo or is he just <laughs> lumbering around some Eskimo villages and they're all taking peace? We'll, we'll find out where he is. So, a polar bear, which is 30 stone over a name, has been given this bad nickname. It's not particularly flattering for the lad, right? <laughs> so, while the average polar bear, what do you think weight wise for a polar oh, bear would Jesus. weigh? I mean, it's 60. Well, in stone. I'll, I'll have to yeah, go. in stone. Yeah, so, yeah. I'm going to say 60 stone. Do you know what you're doing well? 71 stone. Wow. Right? That's what an average yeah, weight is. And he's right? wobbling round at 100. Now, he's 106 stone, is this lad? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> he's got to take his nickname if you're lumbering around like that. Yeah. Well, many claim this makes him one of the fattest in the world, right? <laughs> Earning him the nickname Fat Albert. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> yeah. But it turns out Albert's size isn't all his fault. Right. See, he lives in Alaska, USA, where the locals throw out large amounts of whale blubber to the bears as a sign of respect. So the local Inuit yeah, sort of yeah. like a population. This is, but the, what they'll do is they cut a large portion of whale and blubber away and drag it four miles out of town for the bears to find. So it's not actually in yeah, towns, yeah. you know what, what I mean? Them. Keep them away. Yeah. yeah. So this stops the bears from travelling into town. So in other words, it's a way of stopping hungry bears. Coming towards you in a hurry. Yeah. So, so this is a tradition that's been followed for thousands of years. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing because it's a good thing, and it one so they're full, so they're not sniffing around your camp. And two, the big fatty Alberts, they can't get there that fast. <laughs> you see him coming. Well, I think it's abs- yeah, yeah. Well, just think about that though. I mean, we were talking about those ostrich eggs right at the start there, you yeah. know, and and we're talking about how uh, maybe five thousand years ago, there's a wonderful way of sort of decorating eggs for sort of. Um, uh, for beautiful things as a, as a decorative purpose, and, and now we're down at possibly the same time. These in, in genius Inuit were pulling off lumps of blubber and keeping them, keeping the, the bears out of the way. Yeah, I think that's a good it, thing. Yeah, I love that they've done it for yeah. thousands of years. It's just part of the culture, and it still works. Yeah, yeah. So, so but sometimes you see if the sea freezes early, the local residents see they can't always get whale, and they have to sort of stick around and hunt for seals instead, which isn't an e- as easy for them. So obviously, it's been a good harvest year for the locals. That's why Fat Albert's just this fat, <laughs> right? But Fat Albert isn't quite a record holder yet. Oh, Back in the nineteen sixties, yeah, this bigger man, right? Back in the 1960s, so we're talking the average is 71 stone. Fat Albert is 106 stone, right? And back in the 1960s, an Alaskan fisherman found a bear weighing 157.7 stone. <laughs> he found it. He just saw to have polar bear scales with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, you never leave town without one, do you? You've got to have your polar bear scales there. <laughs> it's, it's vitally important. <laughs> But yeah, so there you go. We got Fat Albert there for you. Would he a fatty bum bum too, or would he just like pure like hench? Oh no! Well, I've got a picture of Fat Albert as well, and I'll I'll, I'll try and post that on the show notes yeah, yeah. too. Um, but either fat, they're just like fat fuckers to be honest. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> they look like they have eaten all the pies, you know. You ate all the they seals, mean, kind of thing. Boobs you know, on Fat Albert. <laughs> 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 Look at the big white furry tits on him. <laughs> the dragon on the floor when he's walking about. 
<laughs> well, he's not far off the floor. His gut's not far off the floor, in Fat Albert. It looks ridiculous. He doesn't look formidable. I bet he didn't go far, you know? though, does he? I bet he just sat there where they dump out blubber, just like, I'm just going to relax yeah, but, here. Yeah, but even at 100 stone, they can shift. They can do like 30 mile an hour or something. Can you imagine a giant fat bear oh, running after Jesus you like God. that? I think any bear on Earth better than a polar bear. I think they're the scariest bears, aren't they? Oh, they are. Right. They are the scariest. Yeah, the biggest and the scariest. When, you know all, you know, so. when they're trying to get a seal, you know, and then just smashing all ice up and that. God. Oh God, yeah. I don't know why. Do you know what we do need? Yeah. We we need a bloody polar bear on this island. That's I what don't we need. Know. Oh, you mean for dolphins? For dolphins, won't be having the bloody barbecues on our but beaches and making just, all these uh, smoky mess. Like, you might just join the dolphins. You don't know. I don't know about that. I'm not oh. risking that, kid. We're having enough bother no, with them. No, if they kick off there, the, oh, oh, I'll go chuck some. So in. what? We'll, listen, we'll, I'll go back in later on. I'll, I'll have a go oh, with them. Do you know what? I'll, I'll join you now. I think yeah. me and you need to go out and clear those beaches and make sure it's all okay. You know what I mean? Bucket of water on that barbecue, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean, because yeah, they're just like kicking it, off all the time. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's time for us to sign right. off here anyway. So this is this is Benny and Matt. So well this is oh, Matt this is from Crack and Cove. <laughs> yeah, there we are. <laughs> Bit of a messy yeah. ending, it don't matter. <laughs> My end's always messy. <laughs> <laughs> so you take care everybody, stay safe and we'll see you next uh, time yeah. at Crack and Cove. Take care, Benny Kays, stay stay side, stay clean. <laughs> see you later guys. Thank you. There are three ways you may contact Kraken Cove. Either by email at podcast at gmail.com On Twitter at Kraken Cove Or Instagram at Kraken Cove Pod. Ha ha!